When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Bob Cowett, and I will be talking today with Gary Stern, uh, former president of the Minneapolis Fed. I think Gary was the longest serving uh, Fed regional Fed president uh, in history. Uh, Gary has his doctorate in uh, uh, economics, and he'll be speaking to us uh, about this from the point of view of the regulator. Uh, I am going to be speaking from the point of view of a practitioner. Uh, I spent uh, virtually my entire career in the international bond and foreign exchange markets. And between us, uh, Gary and I have about a century of experience in the markets. Uh, And uh, over that hundred years uh, together, uh, we've uh, had the rare honor and privilege of not only observing up close and personal the uh, virtually every financial debacle uh, since the early 1970s, but actually being actively involved in those problems. Uh, Gary, do you want to add a little bit to uh, uh, your background? Uh, Well, I think you, uh, you covered it. I worked for the Federal Reserve, all told, for over 30 years. I co-authored a book called Too Big to Fail, uh, The Hazards of Bank Bailouts. Uh, It appeared in 2004, well before the financial crisis, but unfortunately it didn't get get a lot of attention. Uh, And while I wouldn't claim that it would have prevented the crisis of 2007, 2009, I think it could have ameliorated some aspects of the crisis because preparation uh, would have been better, but that's that's all hindsight, um, uh, you know. And and today we're looking at a financial world that is, in some respects, quite different, but uh, also quite challenging. So, uh, our conversation probably started several months ago. Uh, Gary and I have been talking about uh, how relatively sanguine the stock and bond markets were reacting to rate increases by the Fed. Uh, markets had repriced, but the sell-offs in both uh, were uh, uh, were fairly rational. Uh, there was no sense of panic or dislocation, uh, nothing that might infect the banking system or resurrect the moral hazard bailouts that occurred during the great financial crisis. Uh, years of abnormally low interest rates had fueled the huge increase in corporate debt, but very little of that was residing in the form of bank lending. 
defaults remained historically low, uh, and debt was visible. Uh, a bid could be found a few points away from mark to markets in most assets. Um, but as that moved on, more and more of that debt was finding its way into the non-bank markets, into private debt, direct lending, uh, and a variety of different structures. Uh, that risk, that credit risk, was enhanced by the fact that a lot of these loans that were made in the private area were completely invisible. And from what we've been able to see in the, the documents that have been made public, the covenants uh, in those loan documents uh, were few and in many cases, none. In addition to that, one of the key measures of credit worthiness is based on EBITDA, earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes and amortization. Uh, and then the idea came up to people writing those documents to add things back in to make the earnings look much higher. So uh, the FT did a study on that a couple, uh, I guess it was the uh, beginning of this year, where the average number of add-ins was something like 700 words. Uh, the longest ad uh, number of add-ins was about 2,700 words. So uh, that's sort of uh, one of the things that is embedded in the system right now. Uh, and it is completely opaque. And that is a market that by definition is illiquid. Uh, Gary, you have any views on that? Well, you know, Bob, my, uh, my concerns are uh, parallel years, but I, I would express them a little differently from, from a more uh, macro viewpoint. Uh, I think there's a lot that we don't know about um, what's going on in the private markets, private debt, private equity. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have good data. Uh, there apparently is limited documentation of limited quality. Uh, and in some cases, uh, I think we know that due diligence has been inadequate, if not totally absent. Um, and I'm thinking about uh, some of the crypto world when I when I say that. From a from a broader public policy uh, perspective, I think what we like to know about here is are several things. One is interconnectedness, because that's how things get transmitted from a isolated problem at a, in a particular market or even a small handful of firms to have much broader repercussions if there is a lot of interconnectedness. And I don't think we've got a good handle on that. I don't think we have a good handle on leverage because it's one thing, obviously, if the price of your asset goes down, if you're not levered, that's that. I mean, you've taken a capital loss, but you don't have to do anything except adjust your balance sheet. If you're levered, you may have to start selling off assets uh, to uh, repay your creditors. And that's an entirely different set of circumstances. So I think we, we, we need to think about, we need to think about uh, information on, on a couple of these issues, interconnectedness, leverage, uh, for sure. And, um, and of course, there's always the question of maturity mismatches. 
you know, and, and a lot of people in the financial world, that's how they earn their living, uh, uh, borrowing short and, and lending long. Uh, so even is, and that's a source of uh, potential challenge, potential difficulty going forward as well. All of those things, I think, as we think about the environment we've been in, almost uh, almost uh, uh, without interruption since the end of the financial crisis, with low interest rates, low inflation, reasonably well-functioning marketplaces here and abroad, has led to a lot of complacency. Um, and and that you know that's a different problem than the one that confronted us back in two thousand seven, but it's a problem nevertheless. Right, and when we talk about the private markets, the the best data that I've seen, uh, I think it was at the beginning of this year, uh, in terms of uh, uh, private markets, I think there was a. a total of just under 10 trillion in assets in private debt and private equity. And about 1.4 trillion of that was in private debt. And that was the fastest growing area of the private markets. Again, at the beginning of the year, uh, I think there were 700 platforms in the market raising money for private debt. And my question was always, where are all these great credits coming from? How did... <laughs> How did everybody else miss these things? Um, probably a question that somebody should have asked before giving money to uh, uh, Sam Bankman-Friedman also. But uh, those are some of the, the those those numbers are large, and a lot of this stuff is leveraged. And in the ramp ups, uh, when we're talking about transmission mechanisms. Um, a lot of the platforms have lines with banks to do that ramp up funding. And uh, if uh, they get to the stage where they are now, where the sponsors, the end investors, the limited partners have committed to put money in as the uh, portfolios are, 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 are filled up, uh, I've heard that, uh, again, anecdotally, that at least some of them are having second thoughts about honoring those. So those assets that have already been acquired by the banks with mon uh, by the uh, limited partners uh, with money that's been lent for a ramp up by banks, that's certainly one source of potential transmission into the system in leverage that is generally... Uh, 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 re recorded only by the largest banks, some of whom have already started to cut back that kind of financing. Well, I think Bob, there's a couple things to note there, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to play the role of trying to douse fires here, but um, in the wake of the financial crisis, and basically this came out of the Dodd Frank legislation, a variety of uh, regular supervisory and regulatory. Um, issues have uh, arisen with regard to the banks. And I think the FDIC and the, to some extent the Federal Reserve have done a good job of uh, applying Dodd-Frank to the, at least to the largest uh, banking organizations, which of course have tended in the past to be the, the heart of uh, instability. 
Um, and and I think those institutions, it's not necessarily uh, risk proof, but I think those institutions are better, well, two things, they're better positioned to weather storms than they were, say, 15 years ago. But not only that, um, uh, the FDIC has put in place uh, wind down plans for these institutions with the explicit purpose of limiting the damage to other institutions, the financial marketplace in general, and the real economy, should one or more of them get into trouble. And I think those, I think those plans are actually uh, quite, quite sound. What we don't know about them is uh, whether when push comes to shove, uh, the regulators and policymakers will really apply them or whether they'll go down a different path uh, for a different set of reasons. Having said that, um, you know that's that's one sec that's one section of the uh, financial system. There are plenty of other places where uh, uh, serious repercussions may arise. So I don't want to I don't want to oversell that. Um, but I think as far as the biggest banks are concerned, the vulnerabilities have been meaningfully reduced. What I what I find more troubling is reports that um, many institutional investors, and I don't know the accuracy of these reports firsthand, but that many institutional investors have taken on leverage to try to boost returns. And in a world of very low interest rates, which of course prevailed until this year, that may have made sense, at least on paper. It's not so clear uh, whether it made sense in the abstract uh, uh, before the year started, and obviously it's become much more challenging as rates have gone up this year. So when I referred to complacency earlier, that was part of what I was trying to get at. Uh, if you thought you were in the, a world of low interest rates, low inflation, and it was going to persist more or less endlessly, uh, maybe because uh, uh, in part because the pandemic had subdued economic activity and so on and so forth. But for whatever combination of reasons, uh, you, made, you may have taken some positions that are now starting to uh, look very uncomfortable or maybe even more than uncomfortable. And um, that, that to me is, is uh, clearly something to keep an eye on. I, you know, we got the, we, you want to be careful not to fight the last war. Uh, there may be a war ahead of us, but it may be uh, it may involve at least uh, different institutions. Right. And part of that, part of the trigger on that is the valuation of the assets in these in the private markets. There has been uh, some concern that the markdowns that uh, the mark to markets that some of the platforms, both private debt and private equity, uh, are much less than the uh, decline in prices of uh, tradable bonds, uh, treasuries, corporates, uh, and uh, uh, tradable uh, uh, equities, the, the major stock market exchanges. Uh, so, I think the average was something like a, a third of the markdown that you've seen in the, the general markets. And in some cases, there has been uh, a lot of, uh, I think the, the term is uh, uh, 
manipulative return uh, activity on the part of the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, partners in the uh, private uh, programs. Uh, and you would expect that the uh, the general partners, the uh, the sponsors who've invested would want real pricing. But in fact, uh, that's not often the case. Uh, there was a very good paper on that providing evidence that the private equity fund managers manipulate returns to cater to their investors, but that the investors are on board with that because if the markdowns took place, then they'd have to report uh, under performance. And they're so desperate for performance of any kind and income of any kind because a lot of the big funds are massively underfunded and they can't withstand that kind of pressure. So you have yeah. the political element moving into this. Yeah, you shared you shared some of that information with me. And while I must admit I had never thought about that aspect of it, once I once I saw it, I mean it's it's in everybody's incentive to um, everybody's interest to smooth out those returns and to uh, modify the markdowns on the way down, although I would observe that sooner or later, unless the prices recover, sooner or later you've got to get to the bottom. It just be may mean you take a more gradual approach to accounting. I'm not justifying that it. it's it's not it's it's obviously not a good idea, but I can understand how the incentives may encourage that kind of thing. One one thing you haven't mentioned that that is related to all this um, that appears to be going on is withdrawals from some real estate funds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's understandable too, because. Uh, Real estate is certainly the most interest rate sensitive sector in the economy. As rates have gone up, uh, that's been negative news for residential and commercial real estate. Uh, and of course, the commercial real estate market is adversely affected by the trends to work at home. Uh, the demand for office space just isn't uh, what it once was and is unlikely to, to return to pre-pandemic le levels at least anytime soon. And while you might be able to convert some of those properties or maybe all of them, uh, convert them to other uses, that doesn't happen immediately overnight and it requires further investment. So I think uh, what we've seen there, and, I, and some of those funds, of course, have now limited withdrawals. And uh, you know that has to have an effect on, on people's confidence and people's outlook as they, as they think about these things going forward. Uh, from a market discipline point of view, that's all to the good. But from the point of view of possibly disrupting uh, financial flows and having feedbacks uh, to economic activity, uh, you know, all of that is likely to be on the downside. Well, when we get into that topic <clears throat> of uh, uh, the invisibility uh, the BIS also had a very good report on the foreign exchange markets, uh, and uh, it was uh, really pretty shocking. Uh, the uh, the size of uh, the foreign exchange exposure uh, through uh, of uh, forwards and derivatives and swaps uh, was enormous. Uh, just banks outside the United States, outside the regulatory purview of the United States, uh, was around 40 trillion. 
But more importantly, the estimate of the size of the shadow banking system was about 26 trillion. Now, those numbers are on a gross basis, especially when you're doing a swap or uh, a forward transaction. Uh, and on a net basis, uh, it looks less, uh, uh, less challenging. But what it does bring up is the counterparty risks embedded in those numbers, uh, especially in the shadow banking system. Uh, once there is concern, if you've done a swap, you swap one currency for another, or you swap uh, short-term interest rates for long-term interest rate. Those are huge markets. Uh, they're uh, very actively uh, used by a lot of different sectors. Uh, but if the guy that you've swapped with doesn't have anything with which to return his leg of the swap, that gets very, very ugly in a hurry because no one knows who else is in that chain. So he might just be one link of a chain that's 100 pieces long and nobody knows there. So that's another part of the, uh, the opacity and the liquidity uh, question uh, that does link directly into the banking system. And that was something that was, uh, I think, considered a major contributor to the uh, uh, financial crisis in 08 and 09. Well, I think you're you're clearly right about that. Um, and you know, one thing we have seen in in crises in the past is the premium put on liquidity, and by which I mean that um, firms that have it hang on to want to hang on to it, and firms that don't have it can't manage to get it in the middle of a, of a crisis. And that, that of course, leads to, leads to, to, to real challenges for, for those who, let's say, owe somebody something. Uh, and I would recall during the financial crisis of 07, 09, you know, some firms who were cash rich said, that's fine, we're gonna hang on to all of this. And if we have to, have to sort it out in court, we will, uh, rather than, um, uh, part with some of it because a contract said it was required or something like that. And I think if I were managing something like that, I might take that view too. Maybe, you know, because there's always uh, clauses in some of these contracts that allow you to do extreme things in extreme circumstances. Um, so I, I agree with you. That's a potential source of problem. And I agree with you. It, it would back up into the banking system uh, perhaps more of the banking system abroad than domestically, uh, because U.S. banks obviously are long dollars almost by definition. Um, the um, but there's there's clearly some vulnerability there, and I think uh, unfortunately, you know, liquidity is is one of those concepts uh, that you can't really measure because something is liquid today and much less liquid tomorrow. Right. And especially in things like government bond markets, which we're seeing now, and I think there's some concern that uh, the uh, the liquidity provided by the major uh, primary dealers uh, is uh, has been shrinking drastically over the years as the uh, capacity of, 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 of banks to make markets uh uh, has been pulled back just as a risk management tool to comply with the with the, with the, with regulations, uh, and it's been concentrated in the on the run issues, 
and a lot of trading that goes on, especially in hedge funds, not just in treasuries, but in any fixed income market, is not necessarily directional. It's based on the relationship of two similar securities. Uh, and if you have uh, two bonds that are almost identical, except one which is the most recently issued bond, the other one, which is just a few months shorter, uh, was the uh, the last uh, liquid bond. When something becomes the on-the-run, most recently issued bond, that's where all the trading takes place. But theoretically, the prices of those two instruments should be the same. Uh, and if there's no liquidity, so if you're long one and short the other, uh, and liquidity dries up, you can have inversions of that spread, which is referred to as basis risk. And that's what a lot of the hedge funds are based on, not just in the fixed income markets, uh, but in all markets, looking at correlations and volatilities of the assets, having found things that are similar and uh, supposedly having market neutral strategies. And those are some of the ones that have... Uh, uh, felt the most pain uh, uh, over the last few years, especially uh, when retail investor, investors have decided to jump in with Robinhood or whomever and ramp up the value of uh, really uh, weak credits that had been shorted by a lot of uh, a lot of these strategies. So uh, that basis risk, I think, is something that. Uh, is even less visible and has the potential of, of causing more pain than, uh, than some of the other directional risks. You know, let me ask you to, about that a little further, Bob, because I've always thought about this, you know, at the X thousand foot level as, you know, hedge funds are designed to take advantage of various kinds of what they perceive to be mispricing in the market. And so if they think something is selling cheaply relative to a similar asset, they should buy the cheap one, sell the, sell the expensive one, and that should, you know, restore, restore reasonable pricing. I think what you're, what you're describing, but I'm not sure I'm getting it all is, is, is somehow it doesn't work out very well. Right. Because if, uh, there's demand for the most liquid asset that you're short that can go up. And if there's no liquidity in the uh, less liquid, uh, well, not the less liquid, the, 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 the similar uh, strategy, and you're leveraged uh, 20 to 1 on that trade, it doesn't take much in the move of the price differential to cause a lot of damage. And that's, that, that's just an oversimplified version of uh, uh, of the strategy. Uh, there are some things that you might not think would be trading in pairs, but because of the statistical properties of those two assets over a period of four or five years, which is generally what the data set is looking at, uh, if they tended to move in a certain relationship to one another, uh, just on a one-to-one -one basis, uh, that's a strategy that's used in a variety of different markets. But the, the, the other risk there is that you have so many people following the same trades that the volume uh, that's piled into those things, once they start to reverse, 
once you start to buy back your short and, and sell your long uh, in an illiquid market, uh, if you're the last guy that gets the message, uh, you're going to get you're going to get burned, and that's what's been happening. So uh, there's only so much liquidity in the system, and if you had that trade on and you've made money on it, and then you decide to take your money and and, and book the profit. That's going to cause selling pressure on one and buying pressure on the other. And you might not be able to get that short back at any price because no one, uh, no one's left to sell it. Well, so, you know, we've been talking about a variety of vulnerabilities and also a variety of uh, areas in the marketplaces where the uh, at least the gross numbers seem to be very large, but where they're, they're, they are also at at best, in most cases, pretty rough, pretty rough estimates. What do we what do we do about all this, if anything? Uh, I mean, do we let you know if you're um, if you're a laissez-faire economist, you might say, and I'm tempted to say, well, these are for the most part uh, uh, adult investors, and uh, you know that you pay your money and you take your chances, um, and that attitude is okay as long as you don't have systematic repercussions. So I'll go back to the question I just posed. So what, if anything, do we do about all this? Well, it, it comes down to, I think, two very specific choices. Does that land back in your lap as the regulator? Are you going to hire the, uh, the best lawyers you can find to write new laws that uh, prevent this from happening again? and engage in the same behavior that we see over and over again, fighting the last battle, uh, locking the barn door after the horse is, you know, over the horizon someplace? Or uh, do uh, do we just let those uh, who made bad decisions suffer the pain and then deal with the inevitable political fallout that's going to come from that? I, I guess I'd be... Maybe because I'm older and more cranky, uh, I'm getting more and more into uh, into uh, uh, that belief. You have to let uh, you have to let the pain exist, uh, and there have to be specific instances of not only pain existing, but the people who've done bad things go to jail uh, to to stamp that into the uh, uh into the collective wisdom of uh of the markets uh unless someone can devise a law outlawing stupid uh it's going to be hard <laughs> or greed well but but you could presumably try to and i think we might even be able to get fairly broad broad agreement on this not just between you and me, but really broader. I mean, greater transparency and greater disclosure would seem to be good ideas uh, on the premise, really, that more information is better than less. Uh, So the the question that comes to mind is, or the issue that comes to mind is, how would you achieve that? I mean, these are unregulated. Many of these entities are unregulated uh, players. you can request information, but you can't uh, demand it. Um, uh, but but you can consider going beyond that and say institutions of a certain size 
or with a certain charter or a certain legal structure or whatever, have to provide the following information. That strikes me in the abstract as a pretty good idea and a relatively unobjectionable idea, but I'm happy to hear objections. It's just that once you start down that path, the, the sooner or later, even making that kind of request put some sort of imprimatur on things and suggest to market participants that, you know, because the regulators or authorities are interested in this, they're going to intervene to provide stability in times of turmoil. And we can expect that. Um, or are they going to take the next step and instead of just asking for information, start writing regulations? Uh, and of course, when you write regulations, you usually run into the law of unintended consequences, which means there's lots of incentive to find your way around the regulation if it's prof profitable to do so. Um, and, it, you know, so even in this sort of simple uh, world of making improving disclosure and transparency, you start getting into this world of trade-offs pretty quickly. Um, I, I, you know, so I, I think about it, and at one level, it strikes me as unobjectionable, and at another level, it strikes me as I just wonder where where this leads, if anywhere. Well, I, I think the the idea of uh, of disclosure is important and maybe not official disclosure but for any organization participating in the financial market or offering any financial service to a client uh they have to disclose sort of broad uh comprehensive numbers do you have any exposure to crypto uh either directly or indirectly uh, how much exposure do you have to private debt or private equity, uh, either as a provider of assets or an investor or providing leverage? Just those gross numbers. Uh, no laws attached to that. Uh, there are laws that you have to disclose in, in, in a gross fashion, but just have some kind of gross number out there that potential investors can look at that the consultants who most of the major uh, asset managers employ uh, before they put their stamp of approval on these assets or, or strategies uh, would have staring them right in the face. So uh, uh, maybe that kind of disclosure, and if, if you as an investor decide to ignore what is just right there in, in uh, easily consumable uh, form and you don't ask any questions about it, that's your problem. Uh, otherwise, I think we, we continue to run into the same problem where it's no longer a financial or an economic problem. It becomes a political problem. So if some of the private... Uh, uh, equity transactions blow up, their funding disappears. Uh, a bunch of these are concentrated in one congressional district and it's gonna cause uh, a lot of job loss. And that congressman sits on an important committee. Uh, there's gonna be pressure brought uh, on different parts of the official community uh, 
to uh, uh, make an allowance for that. And we've seen that happen in the past. Well, uh, you know, one real world example, of course, of some of this is the meltdown in crypto that you referred to at the outset uh, and the collapse of FTX. Um, although that looks like a pretty straightforward case of fraud uh, uh, to me. Um, but, uh, you know, while I'm sure there are lots of individual investors that have lost significant sums of money, uh, or at least have don't know where that where the assets are at best, um, and uh, are unhappy. And Congress has held hearings and will probably hold more. There hasn't been what I would describe a lot of pounding of the table uh, for intervention on the part of the regulator or indirectly on the part of the taxpayer. Let's let's make somebody whole right. here. Um, so you know. I would, I would attribute that, at least in part, to the fact that so far, uh, as, as crypto things unwind, it hasn't had systemic repercussions, by which I mean it hasn't affected. It, it is, crypto seems to be a, a solar system unto itself without a, uh, that's probably not a bad analogy, actually, solar system unto itself. Uh, a bunch of crazy planets floating around there, but they're not integrated particularly with the rest of in, in any size to the rest of the financial system or to the economy more generally. Um, I could be wrong, or it, you know, it could be that things will ultimately come to light that uh, suggest that this is a a much bigger problem than it appears to be so far. But I, you know, I but I do I do wonder. Whether and and it's the issue you pose at the outset. Have we only seen the uh, tip of the iceberg so far? Well, I I just want to go back to the uh, the the uh, idea of the politicization of uh, the problem. In in uh, your book, uh, Too Big to Fail, you mentioned one of the motivating factors: a situation you had at uh, at the Minneapolis Fed. Uh, early on uh, with a regional dealer. Right. Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting experience. Uh, and I'll describe it briefly. Um, this was uh, oh, probably back around 2000. And one of the regional broker dealers had been involved in lending securities to um, uh, a short seller. Um, and uh, turns out uh uh, they didn't. They didn't monitor the business very well, um, and the uh, the short seller could, went bankrupt and couldn't get the securities back, and that compromised the financial uh, strength of this firm. And their lawyer, or one of their lawyers, called me up and said, "Well, you know, this is going to. You let this firm go. Uh, this is going to have uh, not. They didn't try to claim na national or international repercussions, but it's going to have effect." on even smaller uh, regional broker dealers with whom the firm I'm describing does business. Uh, and it's gonna have effects on the regional economy as it spreads to these other broker dealers. And I listened to this, but I knew fiction when I heard it. And uh, so I said, well, that's, that's too bad, is <laughs> basically what I said. Um, because this firm clearly was not too big to fail and it clearly wasn't going to have systemic repercussions uh, 
for the local economy, the regional economy, nor the national economy. But I mean, that was an easy call um, because of the both the amount of funds involved, the size of the firm, and the, the degree of interconnectedness. That was an easy call. That's not such an easy call if you know if you were to get the same kind of thing happening at say a multi-billion-dollar regional bank. Um, that that might be a much more challenging call for policymakers. And and by the way, I should say, while it was easy for me, it, just as a matter of accuracy, uh, the reserve banks do bank supervision under delegated authority for Washington. So if I had actually wanted to do something, if I had been that crazy, I, I would have still needed approval from Washington, for which I had, would have had no chance of getting that. Uh, uh, but uh, so there, there was good checks and balances there. Uh, and as it turns out, the regional firm went out of business. And I don't think after a few days, I don't think anybody even noticed. Uh, you know, clients were transferred elsewhere. Their balances were transferred elsewhere. And that was that. But, but the attempt was made. Yes. And as this moves to a larger scale and it uh, or if it does move to a larger scale, uh, I just think that the, the risk of uh, moving this to uh, out of the financial system into the political system uh, escalates quite a bit. Yeah, I don't I don't deny that. And if that happens, you know, I, it, because, you know, because in an area that is regulated, whether it's banking with the Fed and the FDIC and, and local banking authorities, or whether it's broker dealers with the SEC and FINRA and so on and so forth, I mean, then you know who to call. By which I mean, the if, if there's going to be political pressure to bear, you know where to apply it. And of course, the Treasury you might apply some to the U.S. Treasury as well. If you think about the financial crisis, you know, you had the president of the New York Fed, the chair of the Fed, and the Secretary of the Treasury all all aligned and all testifying before Congress together, as I recall. Um, but when you're in the in the in the world of uh, in the shadow world that you're describing, uh, a lot of unregulated entities without a lot of data on exactly who knows what to whom. I mean, they may know, but the public doesn't know. Uh, the Congress people don't know. Um, in that world, who do you, where do you where do you apply the pressure? Um, that's, you know, you can wring your hands and say you're very unhappy, but where do you apply the pressure? Well, that gets back to these, this whole opacity and illiquidity uh, <laughs> question. And uh, I think just recognizing that as a potential source perhaps makes it a little bit easier to deal with because at least in, in, in my experience, whenever we've had a true crisis, it starts uh, with some kind of dislocation occurring in markets. Nobody knows what's causing it. And then there's a lot of scrambling around and people pulling in their, uh, 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 their risk tolerance all at once. And that starts to throw uh, 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 sand into the gears of, uh, of the financial uh, uh, an economic system. But knowing who the possible suspects are and if, if there are aggregate numbers available, 
over who has what exposure, at least you have an idea of where to look. Yeah, I agree with that. And as I'm thinking about it a little further, I'm thinking that, you know, maybe maybe rather than ask, or in addition to asking the question, you know, where where are the next problems likely to arise and, and you know, where, where would we like to have more information, et cetera, et cetera, maybe we ought to think about asking a question like, what do we need to do to keep the system running relatively smoothly? And I don't mean but the answer to that is, you know, have the central banks around the world continue to, to contribute to buy government securities in huge volumes. I think that's a non-starter. But, you know, think, think about what, what needs to happen to keep the system to, um, to, uh, to function uh, reasonably well. And I do think, as I think, if I try to answer that question, and I'll turn it to you in a minute, I could do come back to uh, disclosure and transparency. Um, it, it would seem to me that, you know, that those are nest. They may not be sufficient, but those are necessary. Okay, great. Well, now that we've solved that problem, <laughs> uh, well, we'll continue to to. Uh, Keep an eye on things and continue the conversation. And uh, uh, I'm I, I I am sure the world will provide us with plenty of opportunities to expand on this topic as it goes forward. Unfortunately, I think you're likely to be right. <laughs> okay, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to do something with a little bit more of an upbeat tone next time. Thank you. On how right we on how right we were in this. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah, this is a place I'd rather be wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay, take care.